nobody gets a hundred in the national registry. And I think that's a, a real mindset thing that the computer's going to take you to a level where it says, okay, you've got this. These are the feelings people have when they walk into the testing center. And if I can unclog their head and get them used to that feeling, you know, they'll do better. There certainly is an emotional component to this. Welcome to Medic Mindset. I'm Ginger Locke. This episode is a response to the many requests I get from listeners looking for help on the National Registry's written exam. To bring you the most useful advice, I contacted this guest. In my opinion, he's the country's leading expert in the area. He understands the logistics of the test. And the part that really lights my fire is the way he addresses the psychology of taking the test, the mindset of success, what he calls mojo. It's an honor to get to speak to him directly because for years I've referred students to his materials. Meet my new friend and expert National Registry pathologist, Dan Limmer. I can't thank you enough for agreeing to come on the show. As I was courting you to come on as a guest, I told you that at least once a week, I get a message from a Medic Mindset listener about test taking. Sometimes it's the FISDAP test, sometimes it's registry. Sometimes they know they're going into a hiring process where there'll be a written test. And I get these requests for how do I prep for these tests. So I asked for your help. Well, I'm glad to be here. And when I logged on this morning, I'm not kidding. I had a message that said, hey, Ginger, I recently found your podcast. I've binge listened to them all in a week and I'm taking the registry in a month. Tell me how to pass. <laughs> and let me just say, before we go too far, I think people are right to ask. You have a really a great uh, message and, uh, and voice and the way you use the platform. I'm, I'm just you know thrilled with what you do. I'm glad there's good voices like this out there. So I just wanted to put that quick thing in to so make sure that I, that I said that because I, I like to listen as well. Thank you. Yeah, well, it's true. The National Registry is, is really high stakes and it's very uh, stressful. And quite frankly, I think a lot of educators beat students over the head with it. Really, when we want to make people study and, and do things, we tell people it's hard. A lot of people don't pass. And I think that the, inadvertently, we really shake people up about the registry even before they get there because of that. Historically, when I've gotten those requests of how to pass registry, here are the three pieces of advice I've given. One, I tell them to go back in time and make sure that they went to a good paramedic school. I told them to do their research. Mm -hmm. yeah. If you're listening and you're looking into which school to go to, you can research these institutions. I think registry, is it registry that posts the pass rates for different schools? Um, some states do. The, registries post, the registry posts pass rates by state. All right. That's what it is. Okay. So Texas does it. They post the pass rate. So that's my first piece of advice is do your research. The second is to manage your test anxiety. And hopefully we can talk about that some in this episode. And my third piece of advice, the one I've been using recently is go use the Limmer apps. And I want to get this out of the way real quick. In this episode, I'm going to discuss products that you sell. But to the listeners, hear this. Dan didn't contact me about this episode. I begged him. I like his products, and more than that, I think that he, more than anyone I've come into contact with, understands the art of the National Registry question. So can you help us get some insight into how these questions are constructed? Oh, totally. Um, 
the and they're constructed very differently than most of the classroom exams that people use. And I think that's another reason that causes anxiety. I see, you know, memes out there with all these joke things that registry questions are like, and it is like it's written in a different language. The registry questions are written tighter. There's none of the, it was a dark and stormy night, you and your partner at the diner stuff. It's generally three sentences max. You never get all the information you want. And I think that's the first thing. The second thing is that it asks for a judgment or a decision and not something from memory. And that's where it differs from the class. And one of the ways to make a multiple choice question more difficult is to make the choices closer together, tighter, more difficult to differentiate, that best answer format, that you can be given four choices that all look good, like, wow, I do all of those, or four that all, well, suck. And you say, I wouldn't do any of those. And you got to pick the one that sucks less. So I think that's the gist of the registry format is that they're really well-written questions. They're written by educators and physicians and EMS. They're pilot tested. They're validated. It's a, it's a good exam testing entry-level competency, but it does seem to be written in a different language than a lot of classroom tests. And quite frankly, I think we have to improve our classroom tests a little bit. You know, I think that's interesting information and information I've never actually heard that sometimes you're looking for the answer that sucks the least. I think that's really interesting. Do you think that the question writers have that in mind as they're writing these questions? What the registry calls it is uh, choosability. They want all the distractors to be choosable, right? Let's say in class, you know, the, the large bone in the thigh is called the, and we have, you know, femur, tibia, ulna, and liver, right? I mean, we have these really dumb questions in class and you know that you can throw out liver because it doesn't even make sense. You know, the registry wants each one to have something that's going to make a student say, oh, that looks familiar, but there's going to be one that's better. You know, it really tests what it's supposed to test. You know, do students, you know, really know. And I think even for educators that listen, one of the ways to make your tests better is to put better distractors in to go with the correct answer because students have to really know their stuff more to be able to pick them. I follow all your stuff on social media, and I saw an example where you had a suspected acute coronary syndrome patient, like a really standard, obvious chest pain, ACS patient. And one of the choices, uh, the treatment choices, or one of the you know multiple choice options was 162 milligrams of aspirin. And that was the correct answer. And we forget that that's in the range of the recommended doses as a national standard. Yeah, I we joke that every, you know, May and June after classes are over and uh, every December and January, I spend a lot of time what I call talking people off the ledge. You know, they, they, they suddenly get the relative safety of their classroom rocked by really good practice questions. And they think that they don't, you know, know anything. They come out with things like, you know, the National Registry's guidelines say, or, you know, our protocols say, and well, you know, there are no National Registry guidelines and your protocols don't matter. I mean, I, I'm very fortunate to write a couple textbooks and quite frankly, my textbooks are only a small piece of the puzzle. They don't matter either. The registry is looking for a right answer based on science or, or given the scenario, what's the best answer, even if it's not ideal. Students in their head, they fight the question. They look at it and they, they, there's a process where they say, I wouldn't do any of those. This is dumb. And they, they go through this narrative in their head, which is very counterproductive because you can't look at the computer and say, you know, give me two more choices. 
you have to look at it. And, and quite frankly, when you're faced with something that you don't know, the questions are very well written, even, even though they might be unpopular. There is a word or there is a phrase, maybe something as simple as a narrowed pulse pressure or the word shallow by ventilations or something which may appear subtle but will actually give you the answer if you if you read it enough. I mean, these questions have been tested. The answers are there, but you have to work a lot harder for them and you really have to, to think about it. This is helping me kind of reframe registry for myself even. I think you've, you're absolutely right that we've turned that test into just kind of uh, that the, the professors are the good cops and that the registry is like the bad cop. And that's not the case at all. It's actually probably a really good tool for differentiating those who do and don't have entry-level knowledge. Yeah, I think it's fair. I think it's, you know, psychometrically and, and otherwise, you know, it's validated. I think that, that the test that lets people into the business shouldn't necessarily be easy, but the reputation uh, is definitely you know, one of being unfair or scary. And, and maybe it's that way for the NCLEX and the, you know, the boards for, you know, PAs and respiratory and dental. But, you know, I think that, that there's a certain amount of it that's normal. And quite frankly, people get through. And, you know, the other thing I'll throw in probably at this point is good is the National Registry is never going to trick you. You know, it's not their desire. It's not in their plan. It's not something that they allow. They will make a question challenging, but they will never put something in the stem, you know, in the question part that's designed to trick you. If it's there, it means something. And I think it's very important that students know going in that there's no underhandedness in this. The registry can make it challenging, but that's how they do it. They're not going to try and trick you. What advice have you given about how you approach these questions? For example, are you looking at keywords? After you answer that, I have some specific questions after you've had a little chance to talk. The first thing I'd say is that if anyone has told you a rule if anyone has told you something with the word always when it comes to the National Registry, uh, ignore it. I think students routinely go out to the station and they're about to take their tests and people give them, well, it's always uh, primary assessment before this or it's always, or that doesn't work. The registry questions have to be looked at. Each one has to be read carefully on its own merit and you have to make a decision. And I think that people come in with a lot of preconceived notions it really comes down to looking at each question, really reading it well, uh, and making a decision based on each one. You may get a series of similar questions. Some people say, I think I got the same question four times. But sometimes there's something a little bit different in the question. One word difference can actually change it, or the same question with different distractors uh, might make the choice different. It really comes down to to reading the question, having an open mind. Uh, you mentioned anxiety, and I, I think that's something we certainly need to, uh, you know, to talk about. But it really comes down to, you know, to reading the questions more than anything else, picking the best answer and, and keeping that mindset, and then going on to the next question. I think a lot of people, I find a lot of people that I work, like I said, uh, with people that come in and they say, I had a 95 average in class. And I tell you, I think there's times that people with really high averages go to the National Registry and their head gets fried uh, on the first five questions because they had everything memorized and it was perfect for class. And the registry doesn't necessarily challenge their knowledge. It challenges their belief system that the questions are going to be a certain way. And when the really, really good students fail, they go back the second time really because they know more about what the registry is like. 
And that's why we try and do really good practice tests. I, I joke around, people get angry at some of our questions, but they've been written by, you know, Bill Brown, who was in charge of the registry. We have Todd Vreeland, uh, the former exam coordinator. You know, we work really hard to make it registry like, and people get angry with us. And I'm happy with that because these are the feelings people have when they walk into the testing center. And if I can unclog their head and get them used to that feeling, you know, they'll do better. There certainly is an emotional component to this. Our graduates, who are very strong, I trust them completely. When they graduate, they're ready to be paramedics. They go take registry and they text me and they call me that day. And they're like, Ginger, that was brutal. And they feel kind of terrible when they leave. They've really kind of probably met their max ability. I think that test maxes you out cognitively. Yeah. And, and if you go through and you do well, you'll go through some of the easier questions and then you'll get some challenging questions. Um, not to mention the pilot questions that come through. You know, a certain percentage of pilot questions are not going to count towards your grade. So, you know, people need to go in and, and know that it's going to be challenging. But, you know, I do think that their training has a big, you know, role in it. Um, you know, you'd mentioned uh, paramedic students. Uh, you know, paramedics are passing it you know, between 72 and 74% on average across the country. And I think program accreditation and some other things has really helped. You know, where I see the biggest problems are at the EMT and at the AEMT level. You know, EMT educators struggle on how to integrate pathophysiology and real understanding into class. And then a lot of states who've had cupcake intermediate exams now are taking the National Registry AEMT and quite frankly, those lower levels are having problems catching up. And a lot of that's the education. The students are coming to me and they're giving everybody oxygen by non-rebreather or they're not understanding, you know, basic pathophysiology of shock and, and you know, ventilation and perfusion. I think those are some of the, the bigger issues that we have out there. The students come in and I'm not sure how prepared they are. I agree. I think we went through an adjustment with the AEMT, as you said, from the intermediate. Yeah, people are still struggling. You know, with that, plus the 135 question uh, non-adaptive test is is long. And quite frankly, they put a lot of um, difficult EMT questions in there as part of it because AEMT is really an extension of EMT. Paramedic is on its own, but they put a lot of challenging EMT questions in there because it's foundational for AEMT. And I think people are getting harder EMT questions on their AMT, uh, AEMT exam than they had on their EMT exam. And I think that's a big part of it as well. Interesting. I want to go back to this computer adaptive testing. I think I understand what it means, but to fill in any blind spots in my own knowledge or for the listeners, can you explain how computer adaptive testing works? Uh, I think the short version is, is that there's an algorithm in the computer and ultimately the students will have to convince the algorithm that they've met, uh, they've met entry level competency. So that's kind of a broad stroke thing. And I don't think most students really look at the questions and say, oh, this is a more difficult question. But the concept of adaptive testing is, is you start getting served some easy questions. And if you get those right, you're served more difficult questions. And then as that goes, you'll get to the point where in each of the registry sections, there's also, um, you know, pediatric questions in each section that the registry is going to say, okay, they've got this and trauma. And then we're going, you know, some cardiology questions and some airway and ops questions. And they build up the difficulty levels and questions until the computer says, okay, 
you've met uh, what they've defined as entry-level competency in the exam. It's a, it's a very complex algorithm, and registry has thousands and thousands of questions to be able to pull this off. Now, on the way through from the easy questions to the questions that make the computer say, okay, you've met the level, you're going to get some wrong. And I think that's a big issue with students. You know, we have students today that, that get good grades, they expect good grades, uh, and they go into the National Registry thinking they're going to, you know, get all the questions right. Bill Brown was in charge of the registry. He was joking, told me, Dan, I was probably sitting in the room when some of these questions were written. And every two years, I'd research by the exam, so I had the experience. He says, I never got them all right. I mean, nobody gets a hundred in the national registry. And I think that's a, a real mindset thing that the computer is going to take you to a level where it says, okay, you've got this. And along the way, you're going to get a couple questions wrong. And the computer is going to say, all right, you got that wrong. Let's serve up a couple other questions and take you down a path. And then when you get those right, it brings you back and takes you to the level that you need to do. Most of that is transparent to the user. The EMTs and the EMTs and paramedics that go in are really thinking more about the questions and how how foreign sometimes the questions feel. But as they go on, there's a certain level of difficulty. And then you get to the point where the exam shuts off. And of course, that's either good news or bad news, but the computer has made that decision. And it's a very complex uh, algorithm. It's, it's, I believe it's very well done. It's reliable and it's used in a lot of other national testing exams as well. You're probably going to hate me for asking this, but I know the listeners might be thinking about it right now. They're wondering, there's this theory that the test shuts off around a certain number and that it's a, a reassuring number. Have you heard that? Can you comment on that? I can. And I wish that I could give the guarantees that students want. Here's what I do. I, if someone comes to me and they say, you know, I, I, I failed the national registry. One of the questions I do ask them is, you know, how many questions did you get? Because for EMT, it's about 70 questions. And for paramedic, it's about 80. And if it shuts off at that minimum level, it means one of two things. You very quickly convince the computer, the algorithm, that you knew what you were doing, or you very quickly convinced it that you didn't and it saw no hope and you don't know which one it's going to be. Now, if someone says to me, you know, I have a lot of students that have taken multiple times and they come to us and they, they want help. And I say, all right, tell me about your tests. And if they said, well, the first time I failed at 70 and the second time I went to 120, I say, well, I think the good part is, is the first time the computer said, yeah, no, you don't have it. You're done at 70. At least the second time you took it for a ride. You got to 120 questions, which means it was still thinking at the end, which means you probably in theory did better, but still didn't pass. So now we've got to get it so you can, you know, get those, those questions right. There's really no exact way to tell uh, other than that, except at the minimum number, you either rocked it or you really didn't rock it. That totally makes sense. So I saw a video of you on your YouTube channel. You were, I think, at an educators conference and you had this huge board it was kind of like a super large, enlarged, simulated national registry question. And you had the educators coming by and putting little stickers on what they thought was the correct answer. And I think every possible answer had somebody that had thought it was the right one. And it was really neat for me to see in the video that all the answers were picked by somebody. And I found it fascinating that some of the educators that were there, the answers were all across the board. I want to link to that YouTube video in the show notes because I want people to watch that. Because in that, in that same video, you explain why the correct answer was the correct answer. Yeah, we have a series of them. I think we did one at the uh, Educators Conference. We did one at 
expo. I think it was New Orleans. And uh, so there's probably half a dozen of them up there. The Limmer Education has a channel where we have a lot of that that stuff up there. So uh, I appreciate the link. And, and by the way, all the, the nice things that you said about us. I think that um, the first thing we have to do is as educators say, you know, okay, sometimes we, you know, get something wrong. But the reason I really put those things into those at educator conferences is I want educators to say, how can I teach this better so my students will get this? You know, because I don't think our teaching really gets as much in depth and as much critical thinking. And, you know, people say the National Registry has nothing to do with practice. And I think it actually has everything to do with practice. It, it The same decisions you want to make for the National Registry exam, you know, they give you three sentences, a set of vital signs, and says you should. That That is practice, right? And we don't always get easy decisions. You know, I think that that we need to teach more like that. That was really our purpose for educators is, is to say, how do I teach my students to prepare for this? And then for students who watch it to say, all right, this is the kind of you know questions we're going to get. And, you know, yeah, even some educators, you know, get them wrong. You know, when students take any of our practice tests, you know, the way people study is really important. People go through and, you know, maybe we should talk in general about misconceptions about studying. When you get a question wrong on a good, a good practice exam, you need to go back to the to the question and look at your answer, then look at the correct answer and say, what in the stem of this question should have given me the clue that I needed to be able to choose the right answer? Rather than grumbling about the question or rather than moving on to the next one, that studying is an active process and that you know, you'll learn from getting questions wrong. And that's really the that's really the part of it. I'd love for everybody to get a hundred, but if I gave people easy exams, they wouldn't be learning. And I think that's important. And this grumbling that you're talking about, I think that's ultimately grief because they feel angry or sad yep. that they're not having the success that they are hoping for. I mean, you have to work through some of these stages of grief during the initial kind of struggling and failing to get acceptance of the challenge of registry. We have a blog post with the stages and related to the National Registry. I mean, you know, denial, anger, bargaining, depression, and acceptance. I mean, students that really prepare for the registry, go through those. Uh, there's a, we have a blog post out there where, you know, we look at those and we see students, you know, get to the point where they accept it. This is going to be a tough exam. The question is going to be written in a way I'm not familiar with, but I got this. And that's the point that a lot of people don't go in with. When I work with people, um, we have a site where I do online office hours. Every week I do a, an, an hour and people come on and we teach, we go over questions. And I tell everybody when they come in new that what I want to do is I want to do three things. I want them to have the knowledge. I want them to have the ability to read and interpret the National Registry style. And then especially after a couple of unsuccessful attempts, I try and give them their mojo back. And I really believe you got to have that mojo, that confidence to go in and be able to do it. I think that's a really important three things that you need, especially after not being successful once or twice, that it's easy to feel defeated. And that preparation and that confidence and that ability to feel like, all right, the registry's not going to throw me now. That trifecta is, is really the recipe that I've tried to use. Related to the mojo, you said that uh, one of them was saying to themselves, I got this. What do you tell that person when they come to you? I know they I know they come to you because they come to me. When they say, I know my stuff, I just have test anxiety. What type of steps do you walk them through? What recommendations do you give to them about test anxiety? 
I think that test anxiety really fits into the concept of diagnosis of exclusion. That was very recently on your Facebook page. You gave a really good answer for that. Uh, much like a clinical situation, you know, we can't just assume something is is stress or something is stomach upset, you know, when it could be something more serious. Um, the fact is there's probably four things that I would try and rule out first. I asked students, did you pay attention in class? Did you put any work into class? Uh, and then after class, did you study and prepare for the exam? A lot of times people, you know, don't prepare and then all of a sudden they get to the test and they're anxious. <laughs> well, it's not a really big surprise. But then there's things that are a little more out of the student's control, still manageable. We have students that have anything from short attention spans to true attention deficit, hyperactivity kind of issues, as well as people with reading issues. So if you have trouble reading, knowing that you're going into a challenging exam, you know, of course, there's going to be anxiety. But the way to deal with that wouldn't be to deal with anxiety. Breathing exercises aren't going to help you. You've got to really work on on reading and and sitting down, having focusing strategies to deal with your, with your ADHD or your reading issues in the exam. Now, if you can go through and say, no, 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 I, I worked really hard. I had a high average. And no, I can take exams. I've done it before. And you get to that point. But when you get there, you have true signs of anxiety. Your pulse races. You want to run out of the room. You know, you've got almost agoraphobic feelings when you approach the Pearson View Center or wherever you're taking your test. Then that might be test anxiety. Each one of those is dealt with differently. You're absolutely right to not just treat the stress. It's like, let's go back to the root cause and, and work on that. It's good advice. I actually have recorded uh, a relaxation audio that we're going to put on our emtreview.com site, you know, to try and make a more comprehensive solution. When you really think about the power of the mind for both good and, and bad that, you know, we can, uh, you know, deal with that anxiety in a lot of ways. And quite frankly, anything from breathing exercises to just looking down from the keyboard, taking a couple breaths while you're there, just keeping in control for that time. There are strategies to deal with anxiety, and I think people need to know those as well. Are there key words that candidates can look for? You know, I think, um, yes, I think you should always read what the question is asking. You know, you should, or you should next, or um, if they're asking a question about a geriatric patient and they're saying, which of the following things could cause bigger complications in the geriatric patient, they're looking for you to take trauma plus a geriatric patient to, you know, to come to that conclusion. But I think that there are both uh, macro and micro things to look for. I had a friend of mine teaches at the army down in, uh, in San Antonio, Fort Sam Houston. And he called me one day and says, you know, I'm putting students through these things. And I don't think vital signs really make that big a difference on the national registry. So I'm like, well, all right, well, let's figure out what does. And I think the biggest things that you can look for between the lines, one is any indication of the patient's mental status. Um, if someone is, if you ever see the word alert, you're being thrown a heck of a bone because that tells you they're not in a respiratory failure. They're probably not in, you know, in severe or perhaps even compensated shock. And alert is a strong word, but sleepy, shallow, gasping, gurgling, snoring, tired, you know, those, especially when combined with a patient, which may have a mental status issue really should make you look for a more action oriented solution. You should be able to, you know, to figure out that uh, severity. And I think the other thing is the patient's complaint. 
um, much like the street, patients who have chest pain, patients who have indications of stroke, patients who have um, significant trauma also um, have clinical relevance. That you remember, if you look at the big picture, that, that there's multiple fractures and the pulse is, you know, 116. Um, that's different patient than than somebody who appears to be more stable. And I think that that those things are important to look for. And those are almost between the lines kind of things. It's the way the registry is done where you're never handed the solution. You've got to think. And I think finding those things, then the vital signs. We actually developed this four-step, here's how you read a, a question of things to look for. I would say mental status, keywords, uh, the patient's complaint, and then the vital signs, those things give you a lot of information, but they're all kind of the between the lines kind of things, the vital signs and the other things round it out. But you really have got to read each of the words in those three sentences very well. Are there only three sentences or they range in number of sentences? Well, I think that the general style is that they want to keep them tight. For example, a lot of... Um, questions that you see in class. You're treating a 47-year-old male patient. The registry doesn't use the word patient. Of course they're patient, right? And I've worked a lot with Todd and Bill, and they go through and say, that's not necessary. That's their mantra. They read a question somebody writes, and they go, you don't need that. You know, you don't need that. What they do is they bring it down to a core. So generally, you don't see more than three sentences. Generally, if you see vital signs, you see all the vital signs. But they're not giving you a lot of information. I say three sentences, and I certainly can't carve that in a stone tablet and say for sure you may have two. But the fact is, is that there's not right down to the individual words they put in. Their mantra is to keep them tight. No one really wants to make it a reading issue why people don't do it. They want it to be a, a decision-making issue, a clinical issue. So they they make it so it's tight and it's um, all the information you need is there, but no more. So the four things are mental status, the complaint, the vital signs. And then is the fourth thing you said like specific, specific words, words. Yeah. Maybe it's a word that describes how much bleeding there is, but there are certain things that are going to, that are going to be more significant, I think, than the vitals or anything else. And, and where people think, you know, oh, I, I'm preparing students for the registry, but then they'll have to learn how to be on the street. The fact is, is that that's the way a call goes, right? You go in, you look and see how the patient is, if they're looking at you, if they're talking, right? And then you look for those critical things like that across the room look, the patient that's tripoding and can barely breathe, or the one that's eyes are closing and they're about to pass out. It's just like the street. And then when the husband or wife says, oh, they, they just, they said they had a headache and then they just didn't seem to act right. You know, you don't need vital signs for that patient to know you've got a scoot. Right. You know, it's not all that different. Mm -hmm. Going back to the words, we have changed words in some of our tests and kind of experimented and watched how it changes the success on that question. So an example would just be like a standard kind of Beck's triad question, instead of saying muffled heart tones, we might say some type of synonym to muffled. So like um, distant or decreased or something like that. Like it's it's not the textbook word, muffled heart tones that goes with Beck's triad. Right. To get them thinking critically. 
Yeah. And not only that is that, you know, listen, I, I do textbooks. I want people to rely on them and read them and use them. But the fact is there are multiple texts in each of the EMS levels for certification out there. And everyone might say something a little bit differently. Mm-hmm. You know, the concept of thinking that your book or your educator is the only source or the only way to do it is flawed thinking to begin with. And I think EMS is maturing out of that. But I like to bring in other people to teach classes. I like to take test questions from some other book's test bank and put them in mine because that's a benefit for students to not always see the same words. Nobody ever walks out of the registry and says, oh, I know all those words or I feel good about that. You know, we need to take students and make them feel a little, a little vulnerable, a little bit of the need to study, a little bit of that it's not going to be in this nice little world you've had in class, that there's a big world out there and a lot of ways to look at things that ultimately will bring you to the same conclusion, a lot of ways to say those things. And then the jump from there to the field where the patient isn't going to say, I have muffled heart tones or distant heart tones. You're going to have to actually sense that in a kind of auditory way and interpret it. It's jumps that we have to make. Yeah. You know, we, we hang our hats on a lot of things like, you know, Beck's and there's so many things, which one, if we could really reliably listen to muffled heart tones. And it, I really hate that I picked that as an example. <laughs> we used to test suction for 15 seconds. I'll pick mine. This is the one. And the thing is, is that that was so horrible. And it was in books. It was in books that I wrote for years. We do so many unrealistic things in our training. And we perpetuate many things. And I think part of what we do is, is reality. And, and the reason I'm saying this is not to get off into an educator topic is because these things are important for the national registry. Right. Someone says the normal respiratory rate is 12 to 20, or the student raises their hand. Um, I saw one place said, you know, 10 to 24, another one said 12 to 20. What's normal? If an educator says, Use 12 to 20. That's normal. What they do is they miss the fact that when the person is lying in bed and they haven't moved for eight hours and they're breathing at 20 times a minute and they're septic, we can't differentiate. And we're doing no one a favor on clinically or the National Registry exam if we allow students to have a very uh, strict interpretation of what's normal. But that takes both the educator and the student out of the comfort zone to be able to say, well, it depends. That's right. Because students' students heads explode. But the benefit of doing that prepares them for the National Registry later when they can say, wow, gee, 20, but he's not exerting himself. 20, if you're not exerting yourself, it's a lot. Mm -hmm. But we don't prepare our students to know that because we test them on questions like, what's the normal respiratory rate? And we don't give any context. That's practice. And that's that's really part of the exam. I really believe what we need to pick up our teaching game. Some people say the registry is too hard. I say, no, we need to teach better. Mm. That's probably a whole other podcast right there. Well, we are talking about educational topics and we should totally do another one just about that because I can tell just talking to you, there's a lot I need to to pull out and stuff we could discuss. I love that you're talking about teaching this concept of it depends and what that takes for a paramedic program is they have to have time, time to to cultivate that creative and critical thinking and getting comfortable with the ambiguous and the uncertain and that becoming like part of their regular life because that is medicine is the uncertain, uh, particularly emergency medicine. That's my plug for long educational process for paramedics. Both on the same page there. And also, it also comes down to security and maturity on the educator standpoint. 
because educators can feel as comfortable as students by saying, this is normal, this is what's going to be on the test, but no one is served by that. Oh, yeah. Okay. Like giving them, they're like, they feel confident and comfortable giving them a hard rule and like, like, let's just all stick to this hard rule. Is that what you mean? Yeah, it's safe for everyone. Mm, That's a good point. Well, let's stop there. I feel like um, we've gotten like the bread and butter of what I wanted to talk about with the National Registry. And then please, I hope you'll come on again and we'll talk some broader educational topics. I was thrilled uh, when you asked. And if you ever want to do something again, all you got to do is ask. Okay. That's great. I appreciate it. I know the listeners do too. Where can they find you if, to, if they're listening right now and they're about to make it to the station, like they're, they're on their commute to work or on their commute home, where would they go on the internet to just get their first kind of um, exposure to more of your stuff? LimmerEducation.com is the place to go. You can get to, you know, all our products from there. You know, I'm, I'm very proud of what we do. We try and make them real. And if people get a little angry with the questions, I think it means we're doing our job, you know. Uh, when you're there, there's a blog. And I think the blog is where a lot of the information is. Go to the blog and then you can click on like the NREMT uh, tag and it comes up with a lot of this stuff that's there. We work really hard to understand, to, to put it out. I mean, it's really uh, what we do. It's really fun for me to interpret this and to, and to help people pass. I mean, it's, it's, it's what we do. Was your tagline the art of passology? Yes, it was. Uh, experts in the science of passology. We really, this is more than a business. I, you would not believe the number of times that somebody will call, somebody will send me the call and I'll spend time on the phone. I call it talking people off the ledge. They get crazy and discouraged and uh, it's just... Um, I want people to do well. The joys that I've had, even the tough times I've had uh, in all of public safety, I hope everyone has the benefit you know, to be able to do. And, and I'd love to help get them there. Appreciate you so much. You're a gift to all of EMS. You get to a certain point in EMS and you say, who are the new voices are going to be when I'm done? Like I did the EMS educator things at Expo, pre-con stuff for years and years. And then I saw that you and was it Tyler did one this past year, an educator thing at Expo. And I was so happy that you guys were doing that. And I'm so happy that your voice is out there because we need smart, reasonable voices at this point where EMS is. Thank you. Well, that's true. I, I love EMS and I want it to do well. And it doesn't have to be about me. I've had a great ride and I'm still around. And I think that... Um, that one of the important things is that we have to appreciate good new voices and also promote them um, for the good of EMS. Hey guys, lately I've had listeners ask how they can support the podcast. While financial support is helpful and continuing this project, what I really want from the listeners, from you guys, is to know that you're out there listening and finding the topics useful. And the way I know you're out there is when I get a new review in Apple Podcast or when a new listener tells me that they heard about the show from you. Listenership has increased exponentially since we started this project, and I credit you guys for sharing the podcast with other medics you know will appreciate it. Medic mindset isn't for every paramedic. It's for the special kind of medic. You know the ones. They're humble and reflective. They're the quiet leaders. Please help me get medic mindset in their ears. (laughs) 